episode 132, Cash-Based Physical Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trostclair, and today, we're Jared Carter's perspective. Join 2017 and 2018 Podcast Awards nominated host as we get a behind-the-curtain look at all types of doctors and guest specialties. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. If it's your first time, I really do hope you enjoy it. If you're a longtime listener, really appreciate it. Let me know your thoughts on the financial series we just covered. We talked student loans, 401ks, Roth, life insurance, using life insurance as a retirement vehicle, estate planning, so many good things. I just get excited about it sometimes. You might say, wow, it's kind of a weird series. But realistically, you know, doctors come out with $200,000, $300,000 in debt. Some don't make more than $80,000 for a long time. So what are you supposed to do when you have a $2,000 payment a month? So there's options. You know, we got to retire at some point. So you got to start saving early on. What's your options? So I was really excited for it. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you can, take a second, pause it, write a review for the show. It's really motivating for me and it helps others to discover what we're doing here at A Doctor's Perspective. There is a link, a doctorsperspective.net slash reviews. And it'll take you directly to the app that you listen to for your phone. And you can just write it right there. What? It's pretty cool to me. Check me out on Facebook if you like as well. At this point, we did get a new business profile on Facebook. So Justin Trosclair, MCC. Why MCC? Media, commerce, chiropractic. Yes. You know, that's a debate that some people talk about. They say, I don't really want a webpage for my clinic and for my side business and for this other thing that I do. And so what do I do? And I kind of was polling some people and they're like, you know, you is you. You're your brand. So just use your name. And, you know, I thought about that. And if you have an opinion differing, let me know. But you got the podcast going on, the chiropractic clinic going on, as well as books and T-shirts and coaching and marketing, all those things wrapped into one Facebook page. All right. Well, today's guest is Dr. Jared Carter. He has his own podcast called The Cash-Based Podcast. It's for physical therapists. He's got over 90 episodes. And I really like talking to other podcast hosts because they don't just have their opinion. They've got like 100 so I was hoping he would be able to be in the block of cash practice physical therapy. Episode 106, 107, and 108, I tried to get him on, but he wasn't. We got him now. And so we're going to discuss the ins and outs of like the Medicare aspect. You know, got a lot of aging population. He wrote an ebook about it because it's such a common question and nobody wants to get in trouble on that scale for doing something wrong, whether it was negligent, you just didn't know better, whatever. And then we'll talk about how do you figure out the price and then the mindset to ask for it. You know, physical therapy typically is covered by insurance. They might work in a hospital. And so to completely go against that, there's some hurdles. And so we'll discuss those, like, you know, even answering the phone. And because he does this so much, he has, has a coaching aspect of his business. And that's pretty cool because we'll get to see the different aspects when he was by himself, how's the working with an associate. And then later on at the end of the episode, we find out that his children have a spinal muscle atrophy and that completely changed the way he practices. And so it was a good thing that he had the associate. It was a good thing he had the business coaching on the side as well to help out with all the finances that go along with that. We'll talk about square footage, how you should set up your clinic a little bit, the software that he uses to keep everything flowing. We'll cover burnout a little bit. And like I said, at the end, we actually go into pretty deep about what spinal muscle atrophy is, kind of like a public service announcement, as well as his twins story with that. And he also has a, a request at the end. And you can see it in the show notes. If you want to help with the cause and his family, there's a link. You can do that as well. 
and ways to keep his marriage strong with you know several businesses. They both work, uh, having kids with special needs. There's a lot of stress in a marriage right there. And so how do they overcome that so they can stay strong? So let's get down to business. A doctorsperspective.net slash 132 is where you can find all the show notes and transcript. Let's go. Hashtag behind the curtain. Live from China, in the great city of Austin, Texas, we got a wonderful guest today. He's got his own podcast that is all about cash-based physical therapy. And as y'all know, we had a, a cash PT series a little bit a while ago, so I'm really happy to have him on. And now he's going to be able to stand out even more than he already does among the others. Uh, he's got probably 300,000 downloads, more than that at this point. Um, he's a wealth of knowledge when you're talking about setting up something for cash because he's interviewed all these people. Love his show, and welcome to the show, Dr. Jared Carter. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I've been I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I know it's been kind of a long time coming, trying to figure out when our schedules would would both uh, make it possible. So I appreciate your patience with me. Absolutely, all these kids getting in the way. I tell you, I know, man. <laughs> uh, well, I'll give people a quick little background, and then if you want to indulge them a little bit more to those who don't know you. From sure. what I've gathered, you used to work like private PT for like a couple that would fly you around the, the country and you were the, their private go-to physical therapist. Which I thought, wow, that's a pretty amazing thing. And yeah, that's cool. Then at some point, the uh, you transition into having your own place and definitely we'll, we'll chat about, you know, should you start small, work in a gym or just go out on your own and get a 3,000 square foot dream office. Um <laughs> Which I can imagine if you have the funds, go for it. But most of us, you know. But, uh, so fill in the blanks for us. What's, what's the backstory? Uh, let's see. So I've been out of PT school now for, I guess, come, uh, gosh, 12, 13 years, something like that. And uh, right out of school is important for me to, to get a great mentor. And I found an awesome one here in Austin. He's still a mentor. But about a year into that, I got a call from a buddy in PT school and said, hey, man, I'm He's up in Aspen. He's like, I've been treating this couple. They want me to like travel with them, but I can't, I don't want to leave this job, my girlfriend, whatever. Would you be interested? And I said, well, yeah, put me in contact. And so flew me up to New York and, and we all decided it, it seemed like it could work. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I left my first position to become a private physical therapist for that couple. And, um, they're just constantly on the go, hard, hard workers, obviously a lot of wealth. And it was a really eye opening uh, thing to kind of be exposed to their world and to that amount of wealth, but also a lot of misconceptions I, I, I saw in myself about like, you know, when, when people had attracted a lot of wealth or created a lot of wealth or, or that there was some kind of evilness to it or that, um, that there was, uh, you know, that it was just handed to them. And, and that was definitely not the case, um, with them or many of their, the, people that, you know, they surrounded themselves with. And so it was a real eye-opening experience as far as my mindset and uh, a focus on health ca- healthcare and the importance of taking care of oneself. And the yeah, it was just really, really a unique experience. We traveled all over the world. They had a they had a place in Italy. Um, it was it was really something. And uh, but after about a year and I was still young in my career and uh, the novelty kind of wore off and I was not really growing professionally and and I decided that it was time to move on. And so at that point, I spent uh, another, I think, year or two total um, working back 
uh, in the Austin area. I did a little bit of personal travel as well and um, then decided to um, start my own practice when my last employer, um, as I say, kind of made me an offer I had to refuse. He wanted to change up the kind of the uh, my pay scale essentially make me full commission. It was a cash-based practice charging uh, at the time it was like $365 just for the first hour with us and wasn't getting a lot of uh, support to actually fill my schedule. Um, everything, everything in that practice was basically done by word of mouth and not, you know, not, not to say that there's anything wrong with word of mouth. It's a very powerful thing, but you know, if you're going to, especially if you're trying to sell people on that high of a price tag, you, you really need to have uh, a lot of different irons in the fire, so to speak, marketing wise. Um, if you want to do something that's beyond just like a solo, you know, solo practitioner kind of style thing that he was trying to do. And so at that point I said, nah, I think I'm going to find something else. And, and, uh, pretty quickly had a number of people seeking me out online and, uh, for, for, uh, treatment. And so I said, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. I had thought about starting my own practice for a long time. And I thought if there was ever a time to do it, this is it. And, um, and I'm, I'm not going to do the insurance thing. I'm going to see if I can make this cash based practicing work. This was, you know, probably eight, nine years ago. And, um, you know, back then there weren't, there was no one online talking about cash-based practice or how to do it. Um, you didn't really know about many of them. It seemed like it was just one of those really mysterious, rare things to come across a cash-based practice. And now, of course, there are hundreds or thousands of them. Uh, and uh, it's just been, it's been quite a journey since then. After about a year into it, and things were going really, really well, and people were asking me how I was, how I was able to start that kind of practice, um, and get it busy quickly. That's when I, the light went off and I decided to start to teach about it online. So all this time I've had my own kind of offline cash-based practice business and I've had my online uh, business teaching how it works. Well, that's something else right there. Like to just be tired of that lifestyle. Do you think the exposure to that, that kind of money allows you to kind of get out of that cash poverty mindset that a lot of us have? Very much, man. I, I like I said just now, the the effect on mindset was really one of the biggest things that I learned uh, with them, and and the idea of I think a lot of people like myself who grew up with uh, very little, kind of paycheck to paycheck uh, style family, single mom for a good bit of my upbringing, who was a nurse, hardworking, you know, in the healthcare realm, not getting paid, you know, what she should and but just really paycheck to paycheck and, and not really much of an abundance of anything or an abundance of mindset, you know, within the household, mm -hmm. you know, we don't have money for that and this and that. And, you know, you, you, it's very easy to, to get into the idea that, you know, wealth is something, you know, for other people, you know, that's what that small, tiny percentage of people get. And it's usually handed to them and all these misconceptions. And also this idea that there's actually like a limitation on the amount of wealth uh, in finance, you know, financial wealth and otherwise in the world. And they're really, I mean, if, if there is a limit, I, I have no, it's so astronomical, uh, you know, it'd, it'd be an incredible number. And so there really is no no limit to, um, the amount of wealth, uh, you know, created in this world and, and seeing that being exposed to, to that, um, was a big part of, I think what helped, uh, to kind of help me to transition into this idea of I can create a business. I can attract, you know, wealth into my life. It's not an evil thing. There's no limit to it. 
those were really important takeaways from my time with that couple. Now let's chat about this for a second. I'm sure you've heard horror stories because you're, you're a physical therapist. Most people assume you're going to be insurance-based, hospital, maybe have your own clinic, but insurance-heavy. You know, as a chiropractor, we're like, mm, it's pretty normal to be on your own and have to like fight and claw for your own stuff as a, you know, as a business owner. So when we're talking the stories behind why you decided not to go into insurance, what are some of the common reasons that people do that? I had worked in both insurance-based practices, private practices, and, you know, that, that cash practice that I mentioned, you just seen for one, the difference in amount of time we could spend with patients, the freedom we had to give them really what they needed, not what an insurance company dictated, you know, that they needed or would pay for. Um, so just the, the ability to practice in a way that I knew I wanted to you know, and, and provide the services in the way that I wanted to, that was a big part of it for sure. That was a really big part of it. And the other part of it was, was even back then, eight, 10 years ago, I could see the writing on the wall. Uh, they were, you know, my, my practice, uh, my mentor, he was already talking about, and I was already hearing from all, you know, colleagues, uh, and other practice owners about the squeeze that insurance companies were putting on practices. And, you know, even though the cost of doing business is certainly going to go up every year, insurance companies expected you to take lower and lower amounts for your services every time the, the contract was renegotiated. And I, I could see that even though it was, it was very, very scary back then, uh, to do something so different and, and say, look, I'm, I actually don't bill insurance, you know, on behalf of my patients, you know, they pay me up front to do that was extremely scary, but an even bigger risk than doing that was entering or staying in a system that was at some point going to become unsustainable. It's kind of like the amount of people paying into the Social Security and Medicare systems, uh, the ratio getting smaller and smaller, you know, in comparison to the people taking out of those systems. At some point, without major changes, those the Social Security and Medicare systems are also unsustainable. So in order to keep those solvent, they're going to have to make major changes, especially to the amount that, uh, you know, providers are paid for their services, unfortunately. And same thing with private insurance. It, they clearly uh, were not going to reverse and all of a sudden after two decades of cutting uh, rates for our services, say, you know what, we're going to just start paying you guys more and take less profit for ourselves, right? Yeah. It just wasn't going to happen, right? It's never going to happen. Even though it was really scary, I just thought, you know, long term, if I get into accepting insurances, at some point I'm going to be in, in the same situation all these other practice owners are with their back against the wall saying, holy crap, you know, UHC now wants me to accept $55 a patient, but I just did the calculations and it takes me $58, you know, per patient just to keep the doors open. Now I'm losing money on every UHC, UHC patient I get. It just, it doesn't make sense. It mathematically doesn't make sense. And, and so that those are the kind of two main things is the kind of care I can provide as well as making sure that I dictated how much money I made for my services. And I was able to give myself and my, you know, my staff and everyone a raise, you know, as my cost of business goes up, I was also going to charge more. And that's a horrible situation to be in where you have to start thinking, what do I do now? Do I do a third unit of neuromuscular right. rehab? Oh, well, they're not going to pay for that. Do I have to do ultrasound? Ugh, no. <laughs> You got like, I got to create things to even make up the money that I was going to lose, but then they end up capping how much you can get paid per visit. It's a real ethical dilemma. It is. And yeah. uh, especially when you're trying to get the patient the best they need and you just know that they're not going to allow it. Um, yeah. So I can see that. 
So I kind of alluded to it earlier. When we're wanting to do the switch or starting out from scratch, should you start small, like working maybe in another physical therapy's office, a gym, you know, get a clinic of your own 3,000 square feet? What have you noticed with all those interviews you've had is the best scenario? Well, I, I can tell you that I've seen the, the full gamut. You know, I, I've had um, students and audience members and, and podcast guests who have started, you know, as small as you possibly, at low risk as you possibly can, just continuing to work literally full time for an employer and then just doing mobile, you know, I'll, I'll see you at your home kind of visits on the weekends and evenings, you know, mm-hmm. uh, literally just the, the cost of gas and liability insurance and a treatment table that can fit in your trunk and you're ready to go. Uh, all the way to, you know, the, the dream practice you mentioned, the 3,000 square foot. I had a recent podcast guest that I think he, he put a hundred K into, um, some really high, high level equipment that has paid for itself, by the way, because he understood how to market it, um, and utilize it. But, but, you know, he, he, between that and, and, you know, the actual cost of the space, I mean, he was really, uh, he was really invested for sure and had a lot of space and a lot of high level equipment. But um, so so we can work in all scenarios. I think my my tendency, just because um, not only do you want to have people set up for for success, um, but also you don't want people to be like totally just, you know, gray hair and, and, and <laughs> you know, heart attack city along the way is, is to try to figure out how to keep your overhead as low as possible starting out. Um, it doesn't mean you don't invest, you know, whether it's equipment and space or information. It doesn't mean you don't invest, but you really do look at what's the likely return on investment. And can I, you know, can I find another way? Can, one of the things that I found along the way is, uh, that, that ended up costing me a lot of money is that I'd get an idea about something and I would invest in like that, that platform, that online platform or that, uh, or that online course or something. But I do it, you know, months before I was actually in a position where I was going to be able to execute and utilize those things. Mm. You know? Um, and sometimes these would be like a monthly membership kind of thing or monthly fee. And it's like, man, you know, I could have waited six months to subscribe to this, you know, social media scheduling platform or whatever, and then just started, you know, subscribed right when I was all ready to go, had all my content ready, whatever the case may be, um, and saved all that money. So that's, you know, really want to look at your expenses in that way. And, and don't, don't pinch pennies just to pinch pennies. You know, sometimes, you know, if you've got something that's going to cost you a thousand dollars a month, but it's going to score you easily two or three patients a month. And you, and like in my case, at my clinic, we average about a thousand dollars of revenue per, per patient. That's an amazing investment. I'd, I, if I could find 10 of those investments and spend 10 K <laughs> a month for 30 K, you know, I mean, I do, I do that all, all night, all day and all night. Right. But right. So don't pinch pennies and, and, and go like extreme low overhead just for the sake of those things. Look at what the likely return on investment is when you're making those decisions, you know, and I would say you know, it, the great thing about, um, at least in the physical therapy world, uh, is that there's always so much PRN and per diem work that you can pick up if things don't go as fast as you want, or if you wanted to start out as a side hustle and not dive in head first, you can, you know, have a job where you're working three days a week for someone else to pay the bills. And then you got two or, you know, if you're hustling four days, 
days a week <laughs> to uh, to work on your own practice. And that's probably the way that I see the majority of practices start is a lower overhead, often working at least part time somewhere else um, and then building it up kind of as a side hustle to the point where they're like, OK, I've got enough business flow. I can jump off and still pay the bills and just be full time in my own practice. And that makes sense to me because like that guy you were talking about earlier with the hundred thousand. I listened to that episode. Yeah, it took him like almost two years, like him doing everything in the office himself to just be able to make yeah. it, and had a second job working thirty hours. I was like, this dude was hustling. He was hustling, and I think he's got like four or five kids now, and he's amazing. That's um. Uh, if people wanted to listen to that one, if you can just look up my podcast, Cash Base Practice Podcast. It's Kevin Vandy. Uh, was that 82? Were you just it was 82, yeah. Yeah, so then like forward, if you drjaredcarter.com forward slash uh, 82 will take you directly to that page on my website too. But yeah, he, he had some really cool stuff in that episode about utilizing uh, fairly complex uh, Facebook video ad series, you know, like they yeah. have to watch a certain percentage of each Facebook, you know, video on Facebook to, in order to see the next one, but he utilized those at really high success rates of filling workshops. And then the workshops were set up, uh, you know, to be high converting into actual customers. So they had, a, they created a really great system and that at that forward slash 82 at my website, I think I'm pretty sure we have like the download that, that kind of delineates exactly how they did that and kind of some resources there. Yeah. So definitely check that out. Go download that uh, information. Man, we're just plugging each other. This is great. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It's good stuff. Do you happen to use uh, electronic records? Is that a mandatory thing for y'all? It's it's not mandatory, but I just recently in my practice um, got into electronic records. I I shied away from it for a long time because I had had a lot of um, like marketing systems on Infusionsoft and some other patient sites and some other uh, platforms that I wanted to make sure also like my online scheduler, I use full slate. I wanted something that could sync with all those, uh, so that those automated email marketing systems, uh, and other components of those, of those like onboard, like new patient onboarding systems that it all kind of sync together. And I couldn't ever find one that worked just right until recently. Yeah. And, and now it's not necessarily that it syncs perfectly. It's just that it's set up in a way that I can continue to use my full slate as my online booker. And that is an online schedule. That is like what syncs to Infusionsoft and patient sites and like triggers all these campaigns. And then I can just use the EHR separately and just enter patients in or my, my, me and my staff can enter patients in as they, as they arrive. So I use intake Q for that. It's a great, it's a great little model for um, cash-based practices. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I think I had to manually put the emails. I've guessed that, you know, there's certain integrations that work. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to just go to AWeber or MailChimp, you know, yeah. new patient, put their email in. Exactly. And that works yeah. perfectly well. Yeah, yeah. We just kind of, I, I don't know, I, I kind of geeked out on it and got a little <laughs> complex. And like, it, so for instance, if somebody... I kind of wanted, I wanted new patients to be able to, to arrive having received certain emails ahead of time and then also receive emails after the fact. And so, so things like AWeber and MailChimp, you can't really uh, set it up to be like based on a date in that way. Uh, but in Infusionsoft, you can, you can have them go out before an event date and after an event date. And then I had it set up where let's say they cancel or reschedule. I wouldn't have to remember to go back into Infusionsoft and like say, okay, now the eval date is, you know, five days later. It would just automatically pick that up when we made the change in our online booker. 
And so it took a lot of work wow. to set all those things up. And that's why for a few years, I kind of shied away from doing the EHR, EMR uh, thing. But now, yeah, it's been great. My, my staff PT set the whole thing up. We've loved Intake Q. It's been wonderful. That's amazing. Because don't forget, this guy has an entire like online business like with Medicare and running practice, you know, cash practices and uh, I think mastermind groups and all that stuff, too. So yeah. you got this whole other thing that you have to deal with. So it makes sense that you're using in, in Infusionsoft and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I use that for both businesses. Um, Patient Sites Lead Automator is a great platform for automating your lead generation and nurture campaigns. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Um, yeah. And if you've got a lot going on, you do want to figure out, okay, how can I create systems? Uh, how can those be automated? And those that can't be automated or semi-automated, you know, who can I hire to to help me with that? And on his show, there's a lot of marketing conversations as well. We don't have to go too deep into any of that. But here's a question. We're not allowed to price fix and corner the market and all that kind of stuff. But how does somebody figure out, are they going to be hourly? What rate should that be? Should they just charge a flat fee or like a per case? How does someone go about that? Especially when you're into the, it costs $58 for a treatment for, with insurance. Mm-hmm. So we're, so just to be clear, we're, we're saying like as a cash-based practitioner or practice owner, how are we deciding um, between, you know, flat hourly rates, what we charge, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. And because sometimes you get caught in the, I have to charge for an hour, but we are done in 35 minutes. Now what do I do? I see. Okay. So what we do is we still go based on the 15 uh, minute, um, you know, time Mm -hmm. kind of code because everything we do, we have to make sure that it's in line with what we're going to provide to the patient that they can utilize to send in to their insurance as a self-claim. 99% oh. of our, yeah, 99% of our patients have insurance. They have health insurance. It's not just a bunch of people. So they're doing out of network. Yeah. They're just sending in, submitting self-claims, um, you know, to themselves to their, uh, to their insurance provider, uh, in hopes of reimbursement or application to deductible or whatever. And so we have to make sure that we have things set up such that that's done legally, you know, that they can provide those things. So at my practice, we offer 30 minute sessions and 60 minute sessions. And this will be a little complex, but I think it's, it's a great question. I think I'd like to explain it fully for those wondering about this, um, out there because it's, it, it has legal implications. It's important. Um, so we will, we charge more per minute, uh, for our 30 minute sessions than we do for our 60 minute sessions. And that's, for two reasons. One, there's a higher administrative burden with more, you know, paperwork and and whatnot when we have two patients in an hour rather than one. And two, it's in hopes that the higher cost per minute price will, will, uh, compel the person to, to do the higher priced full hour session. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but we offer both of those because it's important to offer more than, more than one option, especially in the cash based world. You know, you get to the end of your free consultation or your evaluation and you say, you know, it, it's 150 bucks, yes or no, or it's we have 30 minute sessions for, you know, 110 and and full hour sessions for 155 or 150. You know, wh- which one do you want? Right now, our pricing is at 185 for full hour and 125 for a half hour. And so the way it breaks down with codes is that we we charge. Uh, was it 125? So we charge, I think it's 6250 
per unit, no matter if it's all of our units of all of our CPT codes are the same cost. So a manual therapy is 6250, a therapeutic exercise, a neuroread, they're all 6250 to keep it simple. And so if we do two units, so two 15 minute units, then that adds up to their 125, 30 minute session. But if they do four units, they do 60 minutes, then it adds up to $250. But they get, and this is an established policy that we have, if you choose the full hour sessions, you get a full hour provider discount that brings them down to 185. And, and so in that way, the super bills that we provide them, it's all delineated uh, there with the CPT codes, ICD-9 codes, everything that's needed for those self-claims, and it all adds up to the correct amounts. And so if they only need 30 minutes and we booked an hour and we're like done at 30, which does occasionally happen, um, we'll say, you know what, I really don't know that we need the full hour. Let's just do a 30-minute session here. And if we wanted to, because you know, they signed up for the hour, we could even add an extra like discount to give them the same per minute rate. If we wanted to, but, um, but yeah, that's typically, that's kind of how we do it. And that's how we address that issue of, you know, if they don't need the full hour, then we have that kind of as a fallback and it still is in line with what is legally necessary with their super bills. So you're able to put on the insurance, you know, the super bill or the insurance form that hour discount. Yeah. The full hour discount. Yeah. It's on there. It's a provider discount, line item discount. Underneath the subtotal, yeah. Now, do they ever ask for your records? I mean, you should be taking good records anyway, but I know some people get lazy because they feel like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So do you still yeah. have to write down all the notes so that way if their insurance is like, hey, prove us that you were doing all these TheraBand exercises, for instance. Do the notes have to yeah, match to yeah. that level? So the I have heard of, of you know, I've had students and, and uh, audience members who – have had notes, have note requests from insurance companies for that purpose of like, is, you know, is this medically necessary? Is it documented that, you know, in the assessment that they really need this amount of therapy, et cetera. But at my practice, no, most of the time with note um, requests, it has to do with like uh, if somebody has had a, had been in a car accident or something like that. And it's a, it's a, now and again, an insurance company will request notes. But the thing is that we, you know, we take full payment in full at, at the time of each session. So if the insurance company says, look, we don't think that this was necessary and we're not going to pay for it. I mean, the patient is signing off in the beginning on their intake paperwork and their, their contract that they understand that, you know, they're paying, they're paying at the time of service and there's no guarantee of what their insurance company is going to reimburse them for. And, and, and in the, in the cases that that has happened with me or with, uh, with, you know, any of my students, I mean, that's, that's an area where we say, look, you know, this is what insurance companies do to providers. And in the cases of, you know, people sending in self claims to their own insureds. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is how they operate to sell. They make millions and millions a year. It's by denying, denying, denying. And that's why I had to get out of that system because it became literally insolvent in many cases and in many insurance contracts to actually accept that insurance and be able to actually provide decent levels of care. Uh, and so most of the time they understand when that happens, that it's just, you know, it's the insurance company doing what insurance companies do. But back to your original question about like kind of the, the detail you need to have with, with your documentation in a cash based practice, really just, you need to make sure that you are documenting, um, in a way that you are, you know, you're covering all your legal bases. If, if, if something happens and you end up in court or someone gets hurt or whatever, you need to have documentation that's sufficient for covering you, uh, 
in those scenarios. And of course, you need to make sure that it holds up to your state practice act or whatever, you know, depending on what field you're in, whatever that, those documents are called, your, you know, your licensure, your board is going to have some details of, of the level of documentation and notes that you need to take. And you got to make sure that those two bases are covered. But generally, those are a lot lower level and less tedious, you could say, than say what you'd have to provide to get uh, in-network, you know, insurance-based, uh, you know, services covered or Medicare services covered. And there's a certain level of documentation that you should have because if they come back six months later, oh, uh, I don't remember what we did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got to be able to guide your own guide your own treatment as well. That's actually kind of how I document. I I probably document in more detail than most cash based practitioners that I know of. Um, specifically for that reason, really, because I, I like to write like the response to each technique. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a little more tedious, but it, it tells me, I look back, okay, this technique worked, this one didn't so much, this one made a huge difference, okay, and that helps guide my, my treatment uh, for yeah. sure. And plus, you know, the activities of daily living, this improved, that didn't, how much mm-hmm. improvement. Are there any techniques that we should hone in on if you're going to be cash-based like SFMA or uh, McKinsey or anything like that? Um, honestly, I think the most important thing is is understanding how to provide a great customer experience and a great human interaction is actually more important than if you you do that via McKinsey or Mulligan or Paris or, you know, SFMA or all exercise or all manual or mix of everything or neuro. Like, it's not that those things don't matter by any means. I have, you know, some go-to, you know, things that I probably use more than anything else. Um, Of course. But I think the most important thing is if you're going to be in because you'd you'd ask specifically about the cash based realm is this, of course, applies to any private practice, any business. If, if you're in the human, you know, serving business, which we all are, you're losing a lot of business and you're losing a lot of the value that you could get within each customer if you're not maximizing the customer experience. And that starts actually way before they become a customer in some cases. Uh, just even first con- connections with your brand. And it should continue way after they discharge from their first plan of care. So that they become customers for life and, you know, raving fans. And, and so thinking about all the little details of their interactions, um, with your, cus- with your business, whether in the clinic or not, and honing in on like, how can we, how can we really wow people? Time and time again, every time they come in and even between the sessions, I believe, uh, as far as, as far as the business goes, is actually much more important than and the techniques you use with your hands. If you want, I can talk more about techniques too, but I just want to plug that the customer experience goes way beyond the techniques we use. That's fine. We've, we've hit some of the buzzwords for those who are, uh, been following. They, they've heard those before. I just didn't know if you had a, um, you know, like a go-to, this is something that I always go with, or it makes it look better for the patient. You know, if they're paying these higher rates, we do these certain things, or we have certain equipment that woos them and wows them. Mm. And uh, I don't think that actually is necessary. I was just curious your opinion on that. Yeah. We're, I mean, our, our practice, and not that this is needed for success in a cash-based model, but we are very, very manual-based. You know, we're very hands-on. We probably are doing, I'd say, 75% of our manual techniques are a little more soft tissue focused and maybe 25% a little more uh, joint focused. And and then we we take, you know, whatever time is necessary from the hour to teach them the, the home program, stretches, exercises, self-treatment 
components that they need to support the work in the clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we spend very little, t- we don't have them doing anything in the clinic that they could be doing on their own time. And, and I think, so that as a model is very attractive to our ideal client, who are the types that are willing to pay more for a higher level service. And a lot of them have already been to PT or other types of practitioners where it's like, here's a stretch cord, stand over there with those three patients, pull on this 10 times. And, you know, next time you come in, we'll do it 11 times. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a joke. Um, it's an unfortunate reality in a lot of a lot of clinics, especially those who have gone through that and seen the level of care that they're getting there. Um, and then they see our videos online or they read our testimonials or they, you know, our blog posts or whatever, and they see how different it is. That's a big part of what gets them kind of over the hump, so to speak, and say, yeah, okay, I know this is going to be $185, but I'm probably going to have to come maybe half as many times, break away from family and, and work half as many times. Uh, I'm going to get higher level of care when I am there, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so those, that model is, is it does kind of set us apart from your typical, especially insurance-based option in our area. I like that idea because, yes, you do have to probably teach them what they can do at home. But outside of that, those few minutes, the rest of it is, I'm going to take you through some motions and some exercise that you can only do here under my guidance because that's what you're paying me for. Yeah. And the hands-on stuff, you know, right? Yeah. yeah, that which they can't reproduce on their own. That's what we really, you know, the majority of time is spent on. No doubt. Do you recommend any swag, you know, mugs, t-shirts, golf bag, you know, some clinics are really into like doing that kind of thing because it gives a wow factor. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I didn't expect that. Or is that just dumb? Uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's dumb. I, I don't know that it's where investment should be made early on. Uh, you know, if, if you're really bootstrapped and, and don't have a lot of surplus or a, a, a big flow of, of profit in the beginning, I wouldn't be investing in those things. But I do think, you know, if you're going to go that route, you want it to be as public facing as possible as far as that goes. So I'd certainly go, you know, t-shirts over coffee mugs, hats, you know, things like that, where you can get your, your brand out there in, in the community um, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Even even like if you if you consistently are giving out this isn't as public facing, but if you're consistently giving out like lacrosse balls or like soft tissue kind of uh, self treatment tools that you can you can easily and cheaply you know put your logo on things like that, I think can make sense. But only when you're really profitable and you know there's a lot of other ways I think you can more effectively spend money to get in front of your ideal customer. Like five hundred dollars on Facebook ads of videos of testimonials and such. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's one. That's one way for sure. But you know, that's that's a whole topic of. of that's a different. You know, if you're going to yeah. get into that, yeah. If you're going to get into the into the paid advertising realm, you you either need to make sure that you can you can do it really really well, and that you're in it for the long haul. That you're not just going to try it for a month and see how it goes. Because I promise, you, it's probably not going to go. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you're not going to get an ROI in one month. You know, you, and you need to have whether it's you or a firm you hire or somebody uh, that's really good with those things to be able to test and tweak and find something that's getting you a good ROI. Then it can be amazingly amazingly effective, but like just throwing 500 bucks at it over a couple months and, and not really having, you know, any real expert doing it with you or for you. Uh, it's tough. It's tough to make it work. Yes, it is. Um, since you handle a lot of people, what are some of the biggest hurdles that you ex- people experience when they're in the midst of cash practice? Huh, that's a good question. Um, I think that 
And it could be as simple as, how do I answer the question on the phone? How, do you take my insurance? Uh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That actually in my, my course is a whole module is just on how to answer the, do you take my insurance question? Cause that is a big it's one. Huge. And it's not just, it's not just a matter of, of knowing kind of what to say. It's getting, it's doing it so much and practicing so much that you get comfortable and confident with the answer. Mm. Like earlier when I was saying, you know, the customer experience is probably as important or more important than the techniques you use to get the results, how you answer that question and the confidence you have in answering the question and presenting your rates once you've had that conversation is just as important, if not more than like the actual words you say. It, it, it really, I mean, it, it takes, it takes a combination of all of it, you know, knowing what to say, but also how to say it and then building the confidence. So that is a big one, you know, when you, to your original question of what are the things that people struggle with? I think that's a huge one uh, because of most of the time we're coming from a world of people being used to spending, you know, 10, 20, maybe $50 a session with us and things being insurance based. And we're not used to placing a really high value on our time or asking anyone to come out of pocket nearly as much as we have to in a cash based business. That the mindset component of that and just getting comfortable with those conversations is you nailed it. You know, one of the biggest things. And then I think just a, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of, I know that so-and-so is doing this and I heard so-and-so on your podcast doing that and people just feeling really spread thin and not having uh, a firm direction and maybe like kind of a step-by-step -step knowledge of, of what to do now and what to focus on next and how to follow up with, you know, this activity to, to optimize, you know, and, and maximize the use of your time um, and all of your marketing efforts. And just, there's just a ton of different things around marketing. We, as clinicians, we don't, I know in PT, in the PT world, we don't get much of that at all. In chiropractic, I think you guys get uh, more of it than we do since so many, you know, chiropractors are, you know, end up going into private practice. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there naturally should be, I would guess that there's more of a focus on it in chiropractic school. I could be wrong on that. You can tell me, but, but I know in, in the, in the PT world, it, it's very minimal. And so most clinicians that decide to start their own practice, they're just not prepared for, whether it's the logistics, the nuts and bolts and, you know, the insurances and how to find space and review a contract and blah, 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 to the actual, you know, marketing of the practice, especially in the cash-based world where you're asking people to come out of pocket so much more, you've really got to know how to sell your services. And it's just not something that we're equipped with. So you have to seek out that advice and those methods, you know, from those who have learned how to do it. That's the hardest part about, I think, being a chiropractor is we don't get it in school. And so you come. Oh, you don't. Wow. No, you would yeah, think at this wow. point. Well, you know, the schools, <laughs> they don't want to wrap their brand around some company and then come to find out that company gets a bad rep for doing something stupid. And now you're tied. To, you know, I think that's part of what it is. But um, there's so many companies and gurus. You know, you got one guy that knew how to do it. And now he sells you on this program. But it's all based on like one person instead of, you know, a lot of people. Anyway, there's lots of help out there for us. You just got to be smart because a lot of people take your money and really don't deliver as much as they promised they could. So Yeah. And that's where I think it's look for the testimonials, ask people, reach out to people that you know have been through programs. You can learn also learn a lot just from the the free content that's that's mm -hmm. out there available, you know, from podcasts like yours. And, you know, just doing your homework, doing your research. And there's there's gonna be a lot of stuff that's said 
a lot of things that are repeated and from multiple different people. And, and a lot of the information is going to be the same or similar. I think when you bounce around and where you find big differences is the style of who's teaching it. Yeah. And so you're buying their personality. Yeah. Finding someone that has the right personality for you. I mean, there are some people that are, you know, they, they need someone who's like, really high energy and motivational. And some people don't really need that, but they need someone who's kind of a little more, um, you know, focusing on uh, the details and the nitty gritty, you mm-hmm. know, logistics. And maybe others need someone that's like really no nonsense and like get off and, and do it and, and doesn't, you know, really hold them accountable. And so f- finding, you know, searching, if you're looking for a teacher, finding someone that you can tell is going to be a good personality fit, because not that all the information is the same, but there is going to be a lot of crossover and, and overlap. Very true. Hey, it's an important topic. I want to say 10,000 people get on Medicare every minute until the year wow. 2023, something like that. Mm, yeah. Um Cash pay T, you cash practice, you cash based, you got to document if you see a Medicare patient, you're still supposed to submit it and all that type of stuff. So do you just exclude anyone over 65 in your clinic? Do you jump through the hurdles? Uh, no, we, we don't. This is obviously a, a, a big topic and I'm happy. I've, I've got time. If you do, I can, I yeah. can dive into it a little bit. Um, and, and really, and, and this, I, Promises not just to, to plug, uh, myself, but I did write a, a book on this topic because it is so vast. Which and is now, why I asked and you. I also, yeah. <laughs> I also want to preface this with it's, and thank you for asking, but, it, um, th- this is all specific to physical therapy. I can't even really apply this. I, confidently to like occupational therapy because there, there may be some differences there. I'm not sure, but I really don't know with chiropractic if, uh, if what I'm about to say is, is in line with what the rules would be for cash-based uh, chiropractic practices. But in the PT cash-based realm, or I'm sorry, just in the PT realm in general, you can have one of three relationships, so to speak, with Medicare. You can be a participating provider and be in kind of, so to say, like in network with with uh, Medicare, you can be a non-participating provider, which is still a contractual relationship with Medicare. And then you can have basically no relationships. The last option, and that's what we are. We, we're not non-participating. We're not participating. We have zero connection to a relationship with Medicare. Mm. And the relationship that you as a practitioner, as a practice in the PT world have with Medicare dictates when you can and cannot provide covered services on a cash pay basis. And it gets really tricky. <laughs> if you, if your listeners who are physical therapists wanted like a, the first 20 pages of my full length ebook, you can get for free. I think if you just go to my website, uh, forward slash newsletter, you'll get it. You'll, you'll get the download and it'll give you like a really good overview of the whole thing. But essentially in my practice, we don't turn all of our potential uh, patients who are Medicare beneficiaries away, but we only accept those that have told us up front that they are 100% sure that they don't want Medicare involved in paying for their physical therapy with us. They understand that they have Medicare billing options and, uh, you know, with participating providers in the area, but that they want to see us and they're happy to pay out of pocket for it. And they won't be sending any self claims or anything like that. And they also sign off and agree that they won't allow family members or any other legal representatives to send in claims as well. Because the times that I've heard of uh, students and audience members kind of getting an angry letter from Medicare as a cash-based practice saying, hey, you were providing covered services and not sending in claims to Medicare, 
which is part of what's called the mandatory claims submission rule. Mm -hmm. That rule being if you provide what would be a normally covered service to a Medicare beneficiary, it's mandatory that you send a claim in for that for that service. Um, so they get these letters saying you you need to re- refund all of this money. And the only times that that's happened is when either the beneficiary or more often than not, like their adult child, or their, their adult son or daughter said, what do you mean you paid out of pocket $4,000? Physical therapy is covered. Give me those receipts. And they send them in. Right. And so uh, that can be an issue as well. So we really do screen people and make sure that they're like, dude, I do not care if Medicare is involved at all. I don't want them involved. I want an hour one on one with you. This this level of service you provide. That's what I want. I'm willing to pay out of pocket. I'm not worried about, you know, getting reimbursed, blah, blah, blah. They really give us that confidence that essentially they are utilizing the one exception to that mandatory claim submission rule. And you're signing a special paper that says that. Yeah, a payment agreement. It's not a an ABN. Oh, just okay. for those wondering, it's not an ABN. ABNs are for for when a Medicare beneficiary was, you know, using their benefit or wants to use their benefit, but it may not may or may not be covered. It's a, just a different thing. It's, yeah, it's a totally different thing. We we call it a payment agreement, and they sign off on that. Um, if we've you know we've not had any issues so far because we're really cautious about it. I know a lot of practices that they do a bit of convincing. You know, if you come here and uh, <laughs> You know, pay us cash and whatever, and, and they kind of convince them. And for me, it's like, no, if they're not convincing me to take them in as a patient, then we we usually refer them out just to be safe. Um, and some some attorneys on the subject would say that if you're not if you have no relationship with Medicare, then does the mandatory claim submission rule and this loophole and all these other components to it does it actually apply to you? It actually, as far as I understand it, and they understand it, it hasn't been tested in in court. No one's gotten one of those letters that didn't have a relationship with Medicare and said, "Okay, I'm going to fight the federal government on this. Let's go to court." They're all just like, "Okay, you know, tail between their legs and refund the money." money And (laughs) yeah, here you go. Um, So I think that's an unanswered question, um, but I don't really want to be the one to answer that question. Yeah. (laughs) And so we're pretty cautious. And then there are definitely practices out there that want to take zero risk. And they do what you had originally suggested in your question was, I'm sorry, if you're a Part B Medicare beneficiary, we cannot see you, period. Even though I believe that when they say the things that I just mentioned uh, up front and really want to see you and are fine with, you know, Medicare not being involved, I feel like we do have the way the, the, the laws are written, that we do have the opportunity to take them on as a patient. But again, that's just me. That's not legal advice or what anyone else should do. You should always check things out with your own attorney. Speaking of disclaimer, we're both not lawyers, but uh, <laughs> as far as chiropractic goes, what you just said is pretty much the same thing with us. Is it? Okay. Yeah. And I, okay. I was a participating. And when I go back to America and decided to do my own thing, and I'm just kind of, I'm like, can I, I'm, you know, I'm not expecting you to answer this, but I'm just like, can I get out of it and be like completely not associated? Can I just surrender my number? And I don't know. I could be like stuck for my career where I have to just do no, that. No, no, no. I mean, again, I don't know about chiropractic, but I know like in the PT world, you have to re-credential. You, know, you have to kind of basically con- confirm that you want to continue to be a participating provider every, I don't know if it's a year or two or something like that. Oh. And so after a few years, if it's anything like PT, that 
relationship would have lapsed and you just got to confirm that it has. And it, and then if you wanted to actually actively get out as a PT, there's a process for that as well for getting, excuse me, for getting rid of the, of your participating or non-participating provider relationship with Medicare, you can do that as well. Okay. Our chiropractic CE, there's always mandatory documentation seminars, you know, a piece of mm. our education. And it pretty much comes down to these are the Medicare guidelines these are the part the part exam and you have to make sure you have these things documented. And when you look at it to me, I'm like, well, that's stuff that you should just already be documenting because you need to as a doctor. But <laughs> if you don't do it quite right, then you got a problem and you can get, you have to reimburse money. So it's just a little more scary. <laughs> you know, you just got to make sure those T's are crossed correctly. You know, exactly. You know, being, being even a non-participating provider, you know, you are then open to audits and, you know, fines if you're doing things wrong. And a lot of times people are doing things wrong. They don't even know they're doing it wrong. They're not like being malicious, you know, but Mm -hmm. then they get audited. And I've, I mean, I've heard about practices literally losing six figures or having to refund six figures and going broke and doing so back to Medicare. I, I know of PT practices going through audits where they found, okay, for years you've been doing this wrong and therefore you owe us all this money back and they were broke. Which is so crazy. Like It is uh, really unfortunate. Right? It's crazy. You know, they said, hopefully this is uh, somewhat accurate, for every dollar they come after for a chiropractor, they get anywhere from 3 to $5 back. Because so many chiropractors have horrible notes. they find a lot of issues. Oh, yeah, okay. you wow. didn't document something. Well, and then, you're, yeah, you didn't put the muscle. Therefore, this whole oh treatment gosh. is not going to count. You're like, uh, times how many visits did I do over the past? Yeah, like what exactly. you said, you're like, oh, no. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a little scary to, to take Medicare, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm not I'm not telling people to shy away from it sometimes with your niche or whatever. It's It makes absolute sense to do it. Correct. Um, you know, for me personally, in, in our niche, it's not really necessary. But, you know, we're not, you know, we're not doing, we're not doing outpatient orthopedics in South Florida (laughs) with all the retirees or anything, you know, so it's, it's different. Uh, some, some scenarios it makes a lot like you're in the Parkinson's niche or, you know, balance and falls and things like that. And I have a few people in my mastermind group that are in those niches. And some of them for that reason have have chosen to participate. Uh, one's non-participating and one is doing it with no relationship actually. Um, so you, but I, I think it makes total sense in some scenarios to have that relationship to have access to those patients when you're non-par just as for the pts curious when you're not participating with medicare and you do have that relationship with them you actually can accept payment at the time of service directly from the beneficiary and in fact you can bill them 109.25 percent of the medicare physician fee schedule so you get about 10 percent more that you can bill and you get it at the time of service, but you still have to submit all the claims to Medicare. And if Medicare is going to reimburse, they reimburse directly to the patient. Mm. So it's a little bit different of a process than if you're a participating provider. And it can work well with kind of cash-based practices in a niche, in the geriatric niche. Okay. You got one more business question for you? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good okay. on time. Go for it. You, at least from what I've heard, have a second hire, another PT in your office. Mm-hmm. So what so many options here to ask. How do you know when you're ready in financially? You might be busy enough. You know, you might have the finances to be able to pay that guy, that person's salary, or maybe there's a better way, uh, you know, per person that they see. Fill in their schedule. Um, is it worth having that second person based on like the amount of managerial effort it takes? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, it's it's very worth it if you 
if you have the systems in place and a bit of luck and you find a great staff PT, staff chiropractor, um, even, you know, administrator, when you find really talented, hardworking people um, and know how to properly motivate them, it changes everything. I mean, it's it's so worth it. It's so, so freaking wonderful, I got to tell you. <laughs> and I can say, like, even if life doesn't throw you curveballs, it's really, I think, great to have other people doing good work on your behalf. It's just, for me, part of creating the lifestyle that I've been working to create for a long time. Even when I was a solo practitioner, having at least a part-time uh, assistant, you know, to take the little things off your plate. To answer part of that question of, is it worth it? Yes. Now, are you going to speak with plenty of private practice owners who their biggest headache is staff management? Yeah. I mean, but a lot of that goes back to bad hiring choices, keeping people on who need to be fired, uh, but keeping them on too way too long and, and not really having just like, you know, we don't come out of school knowing how to market our services. We also typically don't come out of school uh, knowing how to manage people. And so that's another area where it's important to to, you know, learn and, and really study and become proficient in it. Because if you don't know how to manage people uh, and you want to grow beyond solo practitioner, then you're in for a bumpy ride. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I'd, I'd say, you know, one of the things I say a lot about hiring and, and, and management is, is the old adage, hire slow, fire fast. Most people do the opposite. And so along the way, well before you're ready to hire, you'd ask, when are you ready? You should, you should actually be looking for that to, to gather a handful of great candidates well before you are ready. Start the process early. Start interviewing people. Let them know, Hey, I've got this best practice here. I spend an hour one on one with each patient. I'm not ready to hire now, but I'm looking to, to gather, you know, a handful of really talented potentials. And if you're available when I am ready, great. And if not, no worries. At least now we've made a connection and, you know, we can have a professional relationship. But there's no harm in saying up front, like, I'm not ready right now and I'm not sure when that might be, but I'm just trying to meet talented people. So when, so then you get to hire slowly. You're not stuck like, oh my God, I'm on a three week waiting list and I'm already seeing patients on Saturdays as well. And now I really, really need to help. I need to hire someone because, you know, my admin fire, you know, uh, quit or I, you know, I, my child's about to be born or whatever the case may be. You don't want to be rushed in that scenario. And so you can work well ahead of time to gather some. And, and you know, yeah, some of them may be in a position to to move forward when you're ready and some of them may not. But if you have a handful of them, then you're starting off oh, in such a better position. Not everybody wants to work one hour on a person. Right. Yeah. I mean, whatever, you know, if you, if you have, if you have a practice that is, that is attractive, you know, to your typical chiropractor or therapist out there, right? Because you've done something different than just loading them up with five patients an hour and making them do mostly evaluations. So the tech can, you know, or the massage therapist, whoever can take them through most of the hands-on one-on-one stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that's just burnout city. And, and unfortunately in the PT world, that's where a lot of, of staff PTs are at. And so if they don't want to start their own practice, but they want something different and don't want to have to change careers, a practice like mine or, or like a lot of cash practices out there is very, um, you know, very attractive. And they would be happy to be on kind of a call list uh, or I'll tell you first when I'm ready uh, scenario. And, you know, at that time, if they're still in a, in a, an employment scenario that they're not crazy about, then 
they might, you know, make the shift and, and come over to your practice if, uh, if you end up choosing them. So if you, but to, to finish out that idea, just don't wait till you're needing someone to hire to start looking for talented folks. And then if you've ever hired someone and usually we can tell pretty quickly if they're going to work out well, we, you know, once they start to work, if they're for whatever reason, be a wide variety of things. But if you start to really get the feeling you're like, man, they should have this by now. They're not following through in this way. They're not following my instructions. They're not doing this or that. Um, they're not correcting with my feedback. Don't don't wait a year or two. They're going to drag you down. And you know, just make sure you're again. That goes back to having that really solid list of talented folks. You can easily replace people when you're in that position of power. But don't hold people, uh, you know, beyond when you've really seen. You know what? Good enough is not good enough. Just good enough is not good enough for my business. It shouldn't be for anyone's business if you want to really be successful. And I can tell you as someone who's had both employees that I had to fire and employees that I've been so overjoyed to have and just amazed with how much they can, they can add to the business. You, the difference in what it means for your business long term, the experience that people are going to have. Uh, how many people they tell about your business. It's just like this spider web effect that when you have someone that's giving kind of a just good enough experience versus someone who's just really wowing people, including you as their, as their business, as their, uh, as their uh, employer, it just, you, you can't even put it into words. So you know, going back to your original question of, yes, it is absolutely worth it. But knowing how to hire and, and um, how to manage is really, really important to make it worth it. Because otherwise, if you bring on wrong people and you and you hold on to them too long, it, it ends up being this kind of downward spiral, constant headache scenario. So, um, but it, it can it can change everything. I mean, the last year with what's happened uh, since my twins were born, if I hadn't had great staff in both of my businesses, everything would have fallen apart. When I wasn't, I mean, literally, there were times when my son was in the hospital when. I I only had I could put maybe an hour into each business a week. Wow. And they kept they kept moving forward. They kept pushing forward. I wish I, I shouldn't say an hour. You know, when I look at like all the texts and, and quick phone calls to my staff, that's that's what it became is no longer was I executing. It was just getting the staff to do everything that I normally would have been doing. And they stepped up and things not only, you know, didn't fall apart. They went really well. They continued to 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 grow and push forward. So. Uh, it's it's really important to have great staff. Was your ego ever bruised when a longtime patient said, "No, no, Doctor Carter, I'll take your other doctor today"? Um, I I am always overjoyed when I hear that, <laughs> honestly, because really, like I I'd started to kind of pare down how many days a week I was actually seeing clients. Um, as my as my twins were, you know, getting closer and closer, I went from kind of like three or four days a week to two, and then to one. I just see patients on Wednesdays and I've stayed. I still see, see patients on Wednesdays. And so I'm always in, in my particular scenario, I'm always overjoyed when someone um, has a great experience and is like happier to see them than me. <laughs> um, and, and I will I'll brag that point when people call a lot of times, you know, because my name has been I own the practice and, and it's been attached to it for so long and I've been established in the community. People call and they see my name in a lot of testimonials and, and they, they want to see me. And I'm like, look, I'll tell you what, you know, you let's schedule you with me since I'm only seeing patients on Wednesdays. 
that's going to be six weeks from now. But why don't you just start with a free consultation with my therapist? She is amazing. And and I'll just tell you, don't be surprised if you want to push forward with her because 99% of people that see her first or even co-treat with between the two of us, they end up requesting to be on her schedule. Mm. And usually that will at least sell them on like getting started with her. And then she's so amazing that it is true. Most of them are like, yeah, okay, I'll get some of them would still want to see me at that, you know, six weeks out, but they've already gotten in most of their therapy at that point and they're doing great. And so I actually use those ego bruising moments to sell her on new clients. That's awesome. Do you end up having to charge a surplus for you since you only are there one day and do have a waiting list? No, we, uh, I, you know, I know that like, say, if you look at a legal practice, you know, some of your, some of your, uh, hourly rates are going to be vastly different between the, the person that's been there for years or owns the place compared to a new associate. Mm -hmm. But I don't really know. I think you could probably pull that off in a PT clinic. Uh, but there'd be some legal, legal components to it. I I shouldn't speak too much to it. Yeah, I don't think that you'd really be able to make that work, even with like an established, like we have the full hour provider discount. Like if you had an established protocol of, okay, they saw this provider, so they got this discount versus they saw this provider, so they didn't get a discount off the total, you know, the the higher level fee yeah. schedule. But I think, I know. That'd be some I confusing 1099 that, business. Yeah, I think that could be trouble. Uh, so we've, for, for that reason, not looked in that direction. And, and the other, the other part of it is I think that you, you probably shouldn't hire anyone and have anyone providing care that you wouldn't trust to, to give as good of a service as you. And I know that's a big statement. If you're hiring someone that's relatively, you know, early in their career, uh, and you've been doing it for a long time, you know, there's going to be a gap in this skill set and the interactions. And, but, but you should do your best to hire someone that you would feel totally comfortable giving 100% of your patients to, to, you know, seeing them. And uh, then you don't have to really run in or think too much about should I be charging more for my time than, than theirs. You made an interesting comment about burnout for PTs. When you get hired in, say, like a, a musculoskeletal based place versus like, you know, brain rehab and all this, mm-hmm. are you all turning into like glorified massage therapists and then the, the staff people do the assistants do the exercises? Um, gosh, I mean, that would probably be a good question to ask kind of like a variety of of PTs that are actually in those working scenarios. Okay. But the way I see it, what I see a lot in the, what we call like money mill clinics or, you know, these clinics where they're seeing so many patients is it's not as much that they're glorified massage therapists. They literally don't get the time to barely put their hands on the patients at all. Oh. In the, in the, in the worst case scenarios, what I see is the PT uh, there'll be like one PT for every three techs or PTAs and the PT We'll do the evaluations because I believe in all states, the Practice Act states that the evaluation has to be done by the PT, right? Then the actual treatment, you know, the the following of the plan of care is then handed off to the tech that's, you know, under the supervision Ah. of the PT. And the PT is just loaded up with evaluations all days and and re-evaluations. They got to do that. And then every 30 days they do the re-evaluation. And they're just basically doing evaluations, re-evaluations, and a ton of paperwork. And the actual... Yeah, and the and the, the, the provision of care is, is by the lesser paid uh, employees. So that's the worst oh, that, would get that I see. And then yeah, and then there are some scenarios where they're not just having to do that. They do they do 
patient care, but it's very rushed. You know, it's like, okay, I've got 10 minutes to do a few manual techniques and then I got to go to the next patient and you're going to be with the tech to pull on a stretch cord for the rest of the hour and hang out on a hot pack at the end or a cold pack or whatever. <laughs> okay. Bullshit I had it reverse there. Then. Them. Yeah. So that's kind of the way I've seen or what I've seen in, in our field. And, and, and this is, you know, not to piss anyone off, but it is the reality of what's going on in a lot of clinics. And it gives us a bad name. So honestly, I don't really care if it pisses anyone off because if they're perpetuating that as what people uh, get when they go to physical therapy, well, shame on you. You know, yeah, people deserve better than that. And uh, they deserve one-on-one -on -one care with higher-level practitioners. They deserve to not be staying in there with five other patients next to them, you know, someone watching them out of the corner of their eye while they're mobilizing someone else's shoulder. Yeah, it's just, it's just not high-level care. And most people, I think, when they're really honest with themselves, if they were in a scenario like mine where they had a full hour one-on-one, they would admit, yes, my patients would get much better care. I would be able – I would – be less rushed, I'd be able to really utilize the skills I work so hard to obtain in school and beyond. You know, so I, yeah, I kind of get on a soapbox with that because so many of our clients come to us and say, yeah, I already, or what really gets me is when I'm out at like a party or some networking thing and someone's like, yeah, I've got this shoulder thing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh yeah, it sounds like this and that. And it's like, you know, it's, it's something we treat all the time. And they're like, uh, well, no, I already, I already tried physical therapy. It didn't work. <laughs> you know, I'll say, okay, well, let, let me just ask a few questions. Did you, um, when you went to physical therapy, uh, did you, was, you know, were you in kind of like an open gym setting, pulling on stretch cords while, you know, whoever you were working with was actually working with other patients at the same time? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what happened. Okay. Did they ever touch you? Uh, maybe like every few sessions they do a little massage. Okay. But like five, 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. You know, a lot of hot packs and ultrasound. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah every time, every time. Okay. And I say, well, look, you got glorified personal training and actually bad personal training at that. <laughs> yeah. That's not at all what, what we provide, you know, and then I explain a little bit about how we're different. And I say, unfortunately you, you went to a place that just didn't provide really high level care and there's no, and, and I'm not surprised that it didn't work for your shoulder because this, this and that based on what you're telling me is what would really be necessary uh, for your shoulder to get better. And you're not going to get that pulling on a stretch cord with nothing else. I'm not, I'm not bashing right. exercise. It's a huge part of what we teach and what we do, but you know, just that, that approach to treatment. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I'm, I'm careful and tactful. I probably am not that blunt about it. I don't want to like throw colleagues under the bus, right. even if they're giving us a bad name. But at the same time, I am very clear with people who say I tried physical therapy and didn't work that not all physical therapy is created equal. And part of what I'm doing in helping others to create practices where they can spend as much time and give the level of care that they really know their patients deserve, I'm change. I'm trying to change the perception of physical therapy as a whole throughout the population. See, and that's what's fun about listening to other professional podcasts because you get to hear these stories where other PTs are also bashing other clinics like that. They're like, this is trash. This is not what we went to school for. <laughs> and so you get to hear kind of their own pet peeves, just like when you hear chiropractors complaining about other chiropractors. Like, same scenario, I tried chiropractic and you hear what they went through and you're like, oh boy. And they're anti-vax. Oh boy. Okay. All right. Well, we're not all like that. We're not all going to cure your diabetes with adjustments in your spine. So uh, yeah, let's open the book and try again. Yeah. <laughs> I try to avoid like the, the technique 
are, you know, uh, you say like intervention based arguments, because honestly, my focus has been so much more on business and like customer service um, learning as opposed to like learning new techniques or approaches to treatment. You know, there's probably plenty of stuff that I do that maybe research is not supporting so much, um, even if my patients are still getting better. Um, I, you know, I don't get deeply into those. And I think that there are a lot of like purely exercise based therapists that get awesome results. And like, I think that a mix of a lot of different things is super important. Yeah. That's just my opinion, but it's this, it's this, whatever your approach is, if you're, you know, rushing from patient to patient or forced to rush from patient to patient and know you're not providing what you could, if you had the time, um, and the opportunity, uh, then, I mean, I feel like in that scenario, you, you got to make a change, whether it's to another practice or to your own, Yeah, to creating your own. Yeah. I'm with you. Like being in China, that's, I've been focusing a lot on like business procedures and learning a lot of that stuff more than before. And just recently I'm like, you know, I need to take a different seminar to like brush up on some skills that mm-hmm. kind of maybe fall on the wayside a little bit. Cause I don't get to use them yeah. that much. Yeah. So like, let me get a refresher course or something completely new this year. Uh, so I'm really excited yeah. about that this year. Like, you know, when you talk about like technique stuff and not always marketing in business. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit. You're a busy man. You uh, need to take vacations. You got to take a break. How are you able to do that? This could be a pre kid. Yeah. As well. Yeah. I was going to say it's, everything's different now with the kids and the health issues going on. But, um, you know, bef- before it, when I was a solo practitioner, it, it was, that goes back to the whole like needing staff thing because that was painful. Like I, I have family in Australia and when I went to, um, to Australia and then also when we did our, we went on our honeymoon, like I think the Australia trip was three weeks and the honeymoon was three weeks Ooh. and, um, in Italy. And at those times when you don't have staff and anyone seeing patients, now I had my online business, so I was fine, but I can imagine <laughs> not seeing patients, not having any revenue for three whole weeks, you know, that's a tough thing to do unless you've got a lot of savings, you know, over, over years. So, so how I did it in the past was literally, you just have to, you just have to say, I'm not going to be of any use to anyone, patients or otherwise. Uh, family, friends, whatever, if I'm totally burnt out and you have to just schedule the vacations. And I'd say well in advance, you know, at the beginning of the year, say, all right, or at least, you know, six months before you know you have, you're going to have the capability, really just putting it on the calendar and not budging, not scheduling patients in that time. You just have to make it a priority. When you have staff to hold down the fort, it's a whole lot easier to do that. Um, and when you have like more than one business and, and, and passive income, then that changes everything. You know, when you know that you can be in Italy for three weeks, uh, you know, for your honeymoon and you're still going to make, you know, decent money without seeing clients, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a really wonderful thing. And so it's not something I'd suggest to everyone because it really is a lot of work, but setting up other side businesses that, that can make income passively without your hands having to be on anyone. Um, it, it really has been a game changer in a lot, in a way like kind of a, a family saver for us with this past year. But, uh, but right now, I mean, we are going to be moving. We're getting more of routine. We are going to be moving back into figuring out how we can do, how we can take some vacations when we get a little further out of this. But I think just the, at the end of the day, you've got to just schedule it and then pre-plan well for it. Maybe work a little harder leading up to it. See some extra patients to account for that, which you're not going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, if you have staff, 
then those things aren't as big of a concern. Just making sure that they're well trained and have all the, the guidance and, and, and feedback ahead of time that they're going to need to keep the, the ship steering in the right direction. That's true. It's tough. I mean, especially, you know, when staff, I'm thinking, I'm thinking like front desk, but you're actually talking about like if you have a second doctor. You yeah, can actually yeah. stagger your vacations, and that would be a bonus. You know, because so many oh, owners yeah. they want to give the the junior partner or whatever uh, a week. You're like, if you, I didn't take any vacation, so you get a week because I have to give it to you. And it's like, <laughs> you know, if you just think about it differently, you could take off three weeks, and then I could take off two weeks. You know, not at the uh-huh. same time, and you know, one in January and maybe one in October, and everybody wins. And like, that's a really happy uh, associate yeah, doctor, I would think. Staff happiness is, I think overlooked in many ways and, and making sure that people do have the ability to recharge again that goes you know goes back to if they're if if you've got staff that are burnt out and they're not getting their you know sufficient vacation and recharge opportunities that's that's going to have a much more negative effect on your business than giving an extra five days a year yeah you know of, of paid time off i've heard i promise i was listening to some podcast and they were you know discussing what's a livable not a livable wage but like a, a salary that you could be happy with and you might have somebody who's good and stick with you for a long time and you may not mm-hmm. get it the first year but you know between 80 and 110 there's a lot of docs i think based on the workload if they have enough vacation their CEs are covered and they make that kind of money they'll probably stick with you for a really long time because that's a lot easier than having your own clinic. It is. It's true. I mean, if you can set it up where it benefits the 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 business is is doing really well with them still making that kind of money, uh, that's a that's a big win win. We the way I have it set up with my current therapist is is a base salary, but then commission beyond a certain number of patients each week. I looked at exactly what it, I needed to cover all overhead, and beyond that point, she gets a little extra for each patient she sees. And if she stays really busy, you know, she could easily be making 90K a year. Yeah. Um, but she has that base salary as like a good cushion, mm-hmm. you know, to, to make sure she can pay the bills. So that's just the one of many ways you can slice it up. But um, there, there's a good book that uh, that you and, and the viewers or listeners may want to check out if you're if you're interested in actually, you know, having staff or you already have staff is recognizing that not everyone is driven uh, by money as their kind of primary point of motivation and, and how long they stay in a practice and, and are taking a job in the first place. The book's called Drive. I think that might be Dan Pink. I think Dan Pink might have done that one, Daniel Pink, um, who also did To Sell as Human, which is another rec- highly recommended book. But Drive is great because it really dives into what drives us as humans and how that can differ vastly from one person to the next. And figuring out what drives your uh, employees when they come in is really important. Not just putting the stamp of everyone must be driven in the way that I'm driven, mm-hmm. you know, like you'd said earlier, maybe, maybe not everyone wants to spend a full hour with their patients. Maybe they'd be like, hell no, I don't, I don't want to spend a full hour there, you know, but some would, would just, you know, give their left leg for that mm-hmm. uh, if they're in a money mill clinic. So understanding early on and throughout the process and reviewing, like reminding yourself, what did they fill out on this like motivation index uh, form that I have everyone fill out? Like what really drives them? Um, and sometimes money is really important and sometimes it's, it's one of the lower things on their list. As long as you can cover your bills and you can have a com- somewhat comfortable life, then I think it's easy to get into, these are the other actual things I like in my life. Mm-hmm. Like I like to have a little more control sure. and power, or maybe do a little bit more marketing or blah, blah, blah. But if I can't even pay my bills without a second job, right. that's a problem. 
Of course. Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of like that given minimum. They've got to be able to pay the bills. And, and that's, that's a little side warning is like, don't ever hire someone that says that they're okay with taking a big pay cut because they, because they really just want to work for that company. Because over time, the novelty is going to wear off and they're going to have resentment about having taken a big, big, a big pay cut. I made that mistake once. A uh, really talented person. No, I really want to push this business forward. You know, I think we can, I can help grow it and then you can afford to do this or that. And it just, it did not work out. Uh, so yeah. beware on that, end, on that end of things, uh, as far as when we're, since we're talking about pay and management and all that kind of stuff. Perfect. Uh, you mentioned a couple of books before we jump into the last little piece of the interview. Any other books or podcasts that you would recommend? Oh, man. <laughs> um, let's see here. Yeah, I think, yeah, a few, let's see here. So Predictably Irrational is a really good one by Dan Ayerly. It it really gets into um, the psychology of decision-making. And if you really understand that, I think especially as a cash-based practitioner, and as an aside, most insurance-based practices now are essentially operating as cash practices until these huge deductibles are met, you know, and these high co-pays and people are having to pay so much more these days. So this is all very applicable to them as well. But knowing how people make decisions um, is really important and and help in allowing that to guide the way you interact with people, the way you market, the messages you have on your website, your your ads, your whatever, uh, really important. Then um, influence is another one along that vein of, of, you know, how psychology works, how we can influence people to make the right decisions about their health. It's not about influencing them to, to buy anything they don't need, but it is, you know, if you truly believe in your product, then you have a duty to sell that product, you know, to your prospective patients, because if they don't choose you and they choose something that's going to give them a lesser outcome, then that's on you. And, you know, that, I mean, that's not fair to them. It's not fair for you to not sell your services to them if you're providing a bad product and service, right. period. And then, so then that book I mentioned earlier, To Sell as Human, is a good one. And, and any other, I'm trying to think of like mindset books. As far as podcasts go, I really like Mind Your Business. The Mind Your Business podcast by James Wedmore is great. A lot of mindset-based components to being an entrepreneur, being uh, just a, an effective person, a happy person uh, that can run an efficient and effective business. Really like that one. Um, and then uh, one I've been listening to a lot lately is uh, is the science of social media. If you're interested in social media at all, that's a fantastic one because they're really bite-sized, actionable, just valuable, um, really, really actionable um, podcasts, 10 to 20 minutes long. From Buffer. Uh, put on yeah, from Buffer, which is, which is a platform I also use for my scheduling. That's a great one. So I'd, I'd check out those two podcasts. Yeah, I mean, th- those are kind of the ones that I, I really like. I'm not going to plug my own again, <laughs> unless, you're, unless you're interested in cash-based practice. But, uh, but for, for just business as a whole, those are kind of the things that I, I've been listening to lately and some books that I like to recommend uh, to everybody. Awesome. Now, we mentioned it. We've alluded to your, your sons. You had some beautiful twins. Uh, yeah, son and daughter. Oh, it's actually. a double. Yeah. Oh, perfect yeah, for scenario. Yeah. They're, so they're fraternal, fraternal twins, oh, boy and a girl. Amazing. But they have a health issue. So if you don't mind yeah. chatting about that a little bit, I know it's been a, it's up and down, but there's some really positives that I've, I've heard on your podcast Yeah, as far as that goes. So if you could give us a little public service announcement of what they have. And if you, sure. you can discuss however much you want. And then I know that there's a, uh, a link that you want to share at the end, or I would like you to share it at the end. Sure, sure. So 
my son and daughter, Gray and Adelaide, they were born January 2018. So at the time of this recording, they're a little past 15 months old. They started to show some signs of weakness between kind of like months four and five and uh, maybe even a little before that. And so we started PT and they really weren't gaining quickly uh, or quickly as we thought. So we did some neuro workups and at about seven months old, they both received the diagnosis of type one spinal muscular atrophy, which is a really devastating neuromuscular disease or genetic syndrome and was was quite literally fatal um, in 99% of cases by, by uh, you know, the first few years of life uh, up till just a few years ago. Oh. There was no, there was no treatment or no cure in, in, of any sort. A few years ago, the first FDA approved treatment came out. It's been amazing uh, called Spinraza. We got them on that as soon as we got, as soon as we could, you know, we got the diagnosis and really pulled a lot of strings. And, and, you know, we're talking about kind of bashing insurance companies earlier, but I got to tell you, anytime I get a chance to praise Aetna and how they just so quickly moved that process of, you know, approving the use of this drug, which is $750,000 per child the first year, then $350,000 per child every year after it's oh. now they. They get it, yeah, every four months now they get this injection. It's like, uh, I think it's 120,000 or something, a, a vial. I'm looking at these vials when we go in for them. I'm like, holy crap, man, this 120K, two of them actually, you know, sit next to each yeah, other. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So then, you know, but just to, just to praise that, now they've really just come to our rescue, even with like coverage of other things beyond that. They've just been amazing. And uh, they've done what insurance should do. You know, they you pay for it, and and when you need it, they they came through, and they come they're coming through, and and so um, then uh, my son got sick, common cold, um, right after they started the Spinraza, and he was still, I mean, they're still very very weak. It's helped a lot, um, but they're still very weak uh, comparatively. And he got a cold, and it put him in the hospital for three months. Um, and that was grueling. Um, of course his, his twin sisters at home still breastfeeding and my wife had to continue to work full time in order to maintain the insurance. So she's working full time uh, at her job as a school counselor, then basically having to take care of Adelaide as, uh, as much as possible breastfeeding her. And I pretty much lived up at the hospital. We had some family and, and friends that would come, you know, give us relief and do a, an overnight stay here and there. But for the most part, it was a divide and conquer kind of thing. It was very, very difficult. But when we were there, uh, found out that there was this amazing gene therapy um, that was in still in trials, but was likely to be approved, which actually may happen this month. Uh, we'll see. Um, and I found out they had a compassionate use um, kind of program. And we ended up, it was, it was a long process. It's very difficult to make happen, but we made it happen. And they got this incredible gene therapy that actually gives them the gene that they're missing. Um, and it's not necessarily like a, 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 like a total cure by any means, because it doesn't necessarily reverse the damage that had been done. And it's not guaranteed that it gets to every cell in the body that needs it or in the spinal cord. But man, it has been really, really amazing to see what's happened since he got back from the hospital. And, and they both, they, the day before he got out of the hospital, they both got this gene therapy dose and talk about expensive stuff. Like this thing is probably going to have a price tag of anywhere from two to $5 million. Whoa. 
Yeah. Cause it, it's basically a one dose kind of thing. And, you know, as said with the results of the kids in the clinical trials, it's like unbelievable. The early, especially those that got it, you know, in the first few weeks of life, it's just incredible. They're walking. Some of them are even jogging. First few weeks of life. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So they know, you know, they're screened, they either know coming in or they're screened, you know, at birth and find out, oh, okay, they have spinal muscular atrophy. We got to, we got to move. And if they were in one of those trials and got it early on, they're doing like amazingly well. But I mean, yeah, the kids now, knock on wood, have stayed healthy, stayed out of the hospital and they're making great progress. You know, we're still way behind and we don't know how far, you know, these treatments are going to take them. We're, we're running a tight ship around here. They get a lot of therapy. <laughs> and actually that's, you know, that's really what we, we raised money for is that, uh, is to get them, you know, way more than what, uh, what's being, co- what would be covered or is covered by Medicaid or insurance. Yeah. You know, it's really not a lot. So we, we're getting them two therapy sessions, like four days a week and then one the other three days a week. Um, and then of course I'm a therapist. So I'm like working with them a lot and just kind of everything is a little bit of a therapeutic play, <laughs> uh, you know, form right. <laughs> to it. But yeah, I mean, it's, we're, yeah, we're, we're spending about $70,000 a year on therapy, on, on physical occupational speech therapy. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the link that you had mentioned wanting to share, and I really appreciate you, um, saying that, uh, is, 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 uh, we can, if you go to teamcartertwins.com, that just right now forwards to the GoFundMe page. And even if you didn't want to donate or share anything, if you just wanted to follow their story, um, I, you know, probably like once a month, I'll put up some new videos and just update everybody that's been supporting us. And, uh, it's been an amazing outpouring of support. It's been unbelievable. And the, it's titled help help Adelaide and Gray walk someday. Cause that's, that's our goal. It's not just a survival thing. Like, like it was in the past. This is we're we're going for them to be able to walk and live completely. Not that you have to walk to live uh, an active and independent life, but we, we're, we're, that's what we're pushing for. And so we've got a long, long road ahead and it's, it's pretty crazy. I've become now pretty much a full-time stay at home, dad, PT nurse assistant, and, you know, run these businesses uh, with a couple hours of, uh, of time a day at most, but that's just, that's just life right now. And we're pushing forward as joyfully as we can. That's inspirational. So the gene therapy mm-hmm. and the shots, the shots still have to be done, even though they have the genes to make everything normal yeah, again, sort of. I mean, they don't, they don't necessarily have to be done in, Adelaide and Gray were actually, I think, just the fourth and fifth children in the whole world to have both. Oh. And and now that's going to change once it's FDA approved. But I think that what's going to happen, I, I don't know for sure, but I think that insurance companies are going to say, look, you can't <laughs> you can't get both. You're going to it's they're expensive as I'll get out, as you heard. So it's it's like one or the other. And I think a lot of unfortunately, a lot of parents are going to have to make a very difficult decision in that way. But to answer your question, the the reason that they are continuing to get the Spinraza is that they are, they have different mechanisms of action. And I won't get into all the genetics details, but whereas one gave them big dose of the gene that they were missing, it was delivered by a virus into hopefully as many of the cells as possible. The Spinraza actually helps to create this protein that this, the miss, the gene they're missing creates this protein that's needed for neurons to stay alive, motor neurons. Oh. And so this, 
Spinraza actually helps this backup gene to create more of that protein. So for any of the cells that that need that protein that didn't get that gene, which I'm sure there are plenty, um, you know, the, this thing had to get across the blood-brain barrier and incorporate into a lot of, oh my you know, millions of cells. So, so having that as like an ongoing increase of that protein that's needed is very important. And we're uh, down the road, I'll be looking to get them redosed with the gene therapy somehow when, when it's possible right now, they couldn't be, even if we had 4 million bucks and said, look, let's do it again. We couldn't because they're, it's delivered by a virus. So once you get it once, you're going to usually have antibodies to that delivery vehicle. Oh man. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Or there's, there's someone in Harvard that I'm following probably soon connect with that's working on, this is a problem amongst all gene therapies that are delivered by a vector or virus is this idea of, well, if it would be beneficial to have another dose, we can't. And so they're working on redosing technologies. Um, I'm also, if anyone, if anyone hears this, I'd like to put a little request. If anyone hears this that knows anything about motor neuron regeneration and stem cells, it's something I'm just starting to look into and figure out, is there anything because I don't think there's a lot going on with it specific to the regeneration of like uh, damaged stem cells for kids with muscular dystrophy or spinal muscular atrophy. Um, I think most of that kind of research has been based on looking at spinal cord injury mm. um, and some a lot with ALS, which is kind of similar in some ways to SMA. Um, so I'm just starting that process. And if I don't, honestly, if I don't find that there's a lot being done, I would not put it past myself that in a few years I have a stem cell company focused solely on that. So if anyone out there could, could save me the trouble of, of having to do that be great. <laughs> and you have any information on, on, you know, really cutting edge stem cell nerve growth, not, not motor, not, I'm sorry, uh, like brain uh, neurons in the brain, but the lower motor neurons are actual, you know, peripheral motor neurons is, is what we're, we're looking to figure out. Can we reverse the damage that happened you know, in that, in that, those first seven months before they started getting treatment. Cause a lot of damage happened. A lot of damage happened. Yeah. Which is amazing. Like there's, you caught it around four months and these, I guess these other kids, this hospital was like, we're going to screen every newborn for this one test so that we can include them on a, in a research study because. Um, no, what would generally was happening there is that there are a few States that have SMA on their, you know, every, oh. every state has like certain things they screen for, you know, within that first week that, prick their little heel and do a little blood spots on the, on the test, on the little piece of paper or whatever it is. Yeah. And they, yeah. So spinal muscular atrophy is not on most of those for most States. And that's some of the kids found out that way, but more often than not, it was when uh, a couple had had a child who had spinal muscular atrophy and then whether purposely or accidentally got pregnant again, and that second child they knew would have a 25% chance of having it. Oh, let's And get so they immediately, they got them checked immediately or even maybe even in utero. That might be possible. But um, at any rate, that's where you had these scenarios where they found out so early and were okay. able to get treatment. So yeah, I was just wondering, I was like, man, you wouldn't even notice. And I'm, You wouldn't know to, yeah, you wouldn't know to check. And I mean, you know, another, another public service announcement, if you, look, just because even if you've had kids that don't have it, it doesn't mean that you and your partner are not carriers or, you know, are missing one of these copies. You have two copies of this gene. And, and so every birth has a 25% chance if you're both carriers of having SMA. And so whether it's your first kid or not, please, like, 
spend the extra couple hundred bucks to just make sure. It's a very low chance. It's like one in 10,000. But I can tell you, man, you never would expect to be that one in 10,000. Right. And man, to have it with twins and, and they weren't identical. So they, they both had a one in 25% chance. It wasn't like if one had it, then the other one necessarily would have. We just got really freaking unlucky. Yeah. You know, but at any rate, please, you know, with all your, whoever's listening to this, have your kids screen for SMA. Just make sure that they don't have it. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And we've only got one more question for you. You're a doctor. You got, you know, special needs kid. You got your own business. And that can really be a struggle for marriages. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of mentioned before the show, my brother was a uh, special needs. He couldn't walk. He was in a wheelchair and all that kind of stuff. So I, I've seen it. Luckily, my parents stayed married. So what is something that you're doing to keep the love alive, keep your marriage strong? Oh, good, great question. So we have just, we've really made that a priority because we've, we've heard and known that, you know, these kind of scenarios can, can just be incredibly taxing on even the strongest of marriages. Um, so we have a, a weekly date, happy hour, we call it. Uh, we can't really go too late <laughs> because of the situation here with nurse nursing changeover. We have 24 seven nursing for Gray cause came out of the hospital with a ventilator. And so we have to kind of be back for certain things, but from basically four to six every Thursday, you know, we get some, we get a nice date. And then on the weekend when they're down for a nap. So just taking that time, just the two of us, um, uh, is really important and, and something that we make uh, a priority and then just open communication about if we feel like something is, is shifting in a way that we don't want to see it shift. And, and just, you know, that being kind of just that, that, spoken rule of if something is wrong, if you're not feeling right about something, then it's, even if it's uncomfortable to bring up, please, we have to bring it up. We have to keep talking. Mm -hmm. Um, and just having that as, as just that, you know, we're, this is our safe place, you know, (laughs) from, uh, what was that movie? Uh, (laughs) yeah, I thought we were in the safe place. No, but like it just constantly being like, always, it's a safe thing to bring up concerns because I know we've always had that, but not all relationships do. And if you're in a tough scenario, I'd say probably applicable to every, every relationship that if that is the way you operate and you have that open line of communication and you're really adamant about communicating if uh, not just when things are going right, but when things are going wrong, then I think that that's going to, that has been a key to us, you know, getting even stronger rather than, you know, this putting too much stress on us as a couple. It's a great answer. And what are the links that we can get more information about yourself and your businesses? Oh, great. Thank you. My website where I teach practitioners how to become cash-based practice owners, that's drjaredcarter.com ton of information there, just a ton. If you're interested in that business model or even adding some cash pay services and having a hybrid practice, you should be able to find your answers there. If you want more in-depth training, there's also opportunities there for joining the mastermind or taking my my online course. And then, uh, yeah, if you wanted to follow the the story of, of our beautiful twins as they get stronger and stronger, that's teamcartertwins.com. If you want to check out my clinic's website, it's carterpt.com. Okay. Dr. Carter, I really appreciate you spending this much time with us and sharing as much information as you can. I know the audience is going to get a lot of good value out of this. So I really appreciate your time. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I hope I hope they do, and and uh, thank you again so much for for having me on, and and you know allowing me to to have your podcast as a platform to pass on some what I feel are really important things. Another great interview has ended. As I always say, I hope you listened, critically think, and implement something so that your practice life, family life can improve this week. I want to hit you up with a few links today. If you'd like to know what the top episodes of 2018 and 2017 were, you can just go to .net slash top 1718 and you can get a PDF of all those episodes. It's like 22 of them. If you're interested on any of the programs that I've actually been interviewed on, just go to .net slash as heard on. So play on as, as seen on, you know, so as heard on. If you didn't know, the Needless Acupuncture book sales page has been revamped so it looks a lot better. You know, sometimes when you look at a web page and it doesn't look like it's put together well, you're like, meh, I'm not sure about this thing. But it's been redone. looks better. And also, if you have an Android device and you're curious about it, you can actually now download the same five protocols, blueprints, if you will. Right there on your phone at the Needless Acupuncture app. And for less than $4, you can get the whole book on your phone from the Android Google Play store. So if you're interested, check that out. The electric acupuncture pen is still available at a great rate. You can get it on its own or as a package. So you can get the book, the e-pen, as well as the auricular points. Now, some of the things that I'm recommending, Blueberry Hosting, that's who I use. I really like them a lot. I'm not going to lie to you. Fiverr is where I get a lot of my music done, my logos. I don't know if you noticed on Facebook, I believe my picture is now a face with a bunch of words. I just saw that real quick. It was cheap. Yeah, why not? I'll try that for a little while. It's fun. A turtle pillow. It's a travel pillow. It actually has like an H beam in it. So you can rest your neck and your chin on that. So you don't get like the chicken bob where you, you know, you're sleeping and you wake up really fast. And you know, those those U-shaped ones, I just don't think they work very well. So for me, it's worked really well. I've traveled 10 different countries with it. Across the pond, as they say. I uh, really highly recommend that. If you're into instrument-assisted soft tissue manipulation, two options. You got Hawk Grips, so .NET slash Hawk Grips, and also .NET slash Edge. And you can get tools there as well. But they also have way more than just tools. They've got how to get to use Google Apps as your EMR. Uh, blood flow restriction cuffs. There's a lot of research on that device. And you can check that episode from the past. And you can get an automatic 10% discount on all the products from the edge mobility equipment. Uh, one of the devices I use to to send out snippets of the podcast via picture and uh, quotes from the text that I write from the show notes is Missing Letter. They just took out the last E in letter.com. Pretty much, you know, you can do a blast in, in two months and you know, like five emails over two months. I like to do nine emails over 12 months. So that person who was interviewed last month doesn't just get lost, right? You know, so every day I have a new episode at a highlight and it's all automated. It's really cool. Definitely check it out. Uh, if you need to record your screen, I like Screencast-O-Matic. Also, JLab Audio Speakers. I've said it before. I love them. Uh, it's a great company. And now I get to actually be an affiliate for them. So if you end up buying any of their products, just like any of these, I get a little piece. I uh, probably have like three or four different products. I mean, they just the battery lives are longer. Sounds quality is amazing. Uh, and for the price, it can't. Love it a bunch. And of course, in the show notes, anytime you see a book link, you buy it, it comes to me. And .net slash t-shirts will help us out. And lastly, again, something I don't talk about too much, but if you need coaching, whether it's via the Today's Choices, Tomorrow's Health, you need some help with taking those small steps and accountability so that you can actually lose the weight or start exercising more or get your budget in order, just let me know. I can help with that. Also, if you just need some minor marketing coaching or things like that, I can help you out with that as well. Just go to .net slash support. And of course, on there, you can also buy the host a cup of coffee or uh, even more than that. There's different options available. So 
Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week or on the mini-sode. We just went hashtag behind the curtain. I hope you will listen and integrate what some of these guests have said. By all means, please share across your social media, write a review, and if you go to the show notes page, you can find all the references for today's guest. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trosclair, giving you a doctor's perspective.